Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Ladies and gentlemen, record geeks, retired plate spinners, and millennials who want to impress their parents with their record collections. Welcome to the RhinoCast podcast brought to you by Rhino Records. Get ready for new releases, deep tracks, and conversations with your favorite artists and bands. And balloons for the kiddies. And now, your hosts with the most, Rich Mahan and Dennis the Menace. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, we speak with soul music historian David Nathan and dive into Aretha Franklin's live gospel masterpiece, Amazing Grace, The Complete Recordings. Hey, Rich. Hey, Dennis. Today, we are talking to a soul musicologist, David Nathan. We spoke with David at length about all things Aretha, but today we'll be focusing on her 1972 gospel album, Amazing Grace, that was, in fact, the biggest album of her career. Indeed. And I don't know about you, but, you know, the film is just out, and that was a a story in itself, which David is going to also dig into with us, because this film was produced, as was the album, in 1972, and it didn't surface until now. What a treat it is to finally have this movie available. If you just watch the trailer, you'll see how much passion is in Aretha's performance. Absolutely. This, This is one of those Rhino podcasts that... We don't want to say too much at the beginning because we learned so much from David and there's so many stories that you just want to give them all away now. David interviewed Aretha probably more times than just about anybody else and they became friends and he had conversations with her that weren't interviews. So I really feel like he had an inside feel on so much that Aretha did as an artist and just as a person that he has some valuable insight that I think people are going to really find interesting. I don't think most people, including me, by the way, knew anywhere near as much about this iconic Aretha Franklin record. Yeah, it really is something special. I mean, this is her biggest record of her career. It over double platinum at this point. You think about what Aretha brings to a record and how she emotes and the passion she puts into it. I think this is pretty much the zenith of that for her. David was kind enough to come over the pond and join us at the Treehouse Studios at Rhino HQ in Burbank for our conversation. And I think it should be said that this is the first of three podcasts with David Nathan coming up over the coming weeks relating to Aretha Franklin releases. This really is the year of Aretha. She's being honored in so many different ways, as she should be. And we were fortunate that David was available.
David Nathan, thank you so much for joining us here at Rhino for the Rhino Podcast. Welcome. Why don't we start off by you telling us about your background? So my background is I grew up in London, born in London, and I started becoming aware of what we then called R&B before it became soul. Around 1963-4, actually by virtue of the Beatles, because the Beatles used to cover some certain Motown and R&B songs of the day, and they used to write on the back of the, of the notes on the back of the LPs who did the original versions of certain songs. And I was kind of intrigued about that as a little, yeah. as a, a Brit, like my fellow teenagers. And, the, and in fact, and the record actually that really uh, became like the, the one that had me really understand the passion and emotion that was really in authentic American R&B was not an R&B record. <laughs> it was Dionne Warwick's Walk On By. <laughs> <laughs> Which when I tell people think that that's not really an R and B, but it wasn't that it was R and B. It was how she was singing, the whole kind of, you know, her approach to the song, the groove. Yeah, and it was just after that I became very like, wow, this music is amazing, and um, started a record shop with. Oh, in the between that, I started the first Nina Simone Appreciation Society in London in 1965 wasn't a fan club. She called it a fan club. We called it Appreciation Society. <laughs> anyway, it, you know, and then I really got involved with owning a record shop. And really, it became kind of my life work in, in terms of my passion for the music, which at that point then became soul music. At some point, my passion for uh, and love for the music really became evident through my work as a journalist, which was not my original career plan, but that's how it evolved. And so then I uh, wrote for a magazine in Britain called Blues and Soul. In 1967, my first cover story was on Aretha Franklin doing a Top of the Pops dressing room conversation that turned into a cover story for Blues and Soul on Aretha. And then I moved to New York in 1975 as a Blues and Soul U.S. correspondent and basically been working in the world of soul music pretty much my entire life. It's our pleasure to have you for several podcasts relating to Aretha Franklin. Yes. And we thought that there was no better place to start than her fourth live album. I'm just going to do some stats. Double platinum, biggest selling live gospel album of all time, and her best selling album in her 50 year career, Amazing Grace. Yes. Recorded at the New Temple Missionary Baptist Church, Los Angeles, January 13th, 14th, 1972. Whose idea was it to take on this? I mean, this was an incredible, incredible project. Well, the real genesis of doing the album was actually uh, conversations Aretha had with uh, Reverend James Cleveland, who, of course, is featured on Amazing Grace prominently, and it's his choir, it's his church, his home church. Uh, in Los Angeles. And I don't know what the specific reasoning behind it was, other than that if she was going to do a full-on gospel album, that would be the person and she would do it with. And they were having conversations for about two years, I think, prior to it becoming a reality. She presented the idea to Jerry Wexler, but with the condition that it would have to involve James Cleveland, who was also a part of her history in terms of really assisted her and mentored her as a pianist, as a teenager. I mean, almost like pre-teenager, but teenager because Reverend James Cleveland was a frequent visitor to Reverend C.L. Franklin's household. And of course, Reverend C.L. Franklin being Aretha's father. There was that connection. And James Cleveland was already a, when Aretha was growing up, had already established some recognition and for the kind of work he did as a 
preacher, gospel singer, and so on. So James Cleveland was a part of Aretha's childhood, very much. And and she actually references in conversations how he was really responsible for literally, I won't say schooling her, but really you know, being, being a primary influence on her ability as a pianist in accompanying herself as a gospel singer more than an R&B singer. I mean, she apparently already knew how to play the piano. And Reverend Cleveland was an accomplished pianist himself? Yes. I don't think he was known for that, but that was one of his skill sets, yeah. You mentioned Jerry Wexler. Yes. How did Jerry Wexler and Arif Martin approach the production of this record? They must have approached it differently than they would any of the studio albums that they recorded with Aretha. Yeah, if we look at it in context, I mean, of course, you know, that live album was after the live Fillmore West, so they already had some basis for how to record Aretha live even though it's a different setting. All I can tell you about what I know about it is that in many ways it was an Aretha James Cleveland project that, of course, you know, Jerry Wexler and Arif and the Atlantic executives and staff were involved with. But I think a lot of the how it was created and how, I mean, they didn't do, a, apparently they didn't do a lot of rehearsals for it, which is kind of interesting. Like they, it was basically what you heard when it was actually recorded was almost how they rehearsed it. I mean, there was, there was not a lot of rehearsal from what I understand. While Jerry Wexler, of course, was the producer of, of, the, of the first, like, however many of Aretha's albums on Atlantic, it's kind of hard to imagine that Jerry, respectfully, <laughs> actually gave Aretha any direction about what vocal to do. Because ba- yeah. basically, you know, it was more like setting up the environment and musicians and so on. As I know in conversations that I had with Aretha, you know, a lot of those, the vocals, I mean, he just would say, you know, do a couple of takes. And she, I mean, she already knew what she was going to do, so it wasn't really like as it would have been with some other artists. Certainly not scripted. No, no. So the choir, the congregation, was that, to your knowledge, from the church? Mm-hmm. Yes. And they didn't cast any other background singers or pepper the room or anything like that? Well, I mean... As you can see, if you know, look, look at the credits. I mean, while yes, the live, the live, the actual live recording is with the choir and so on. I know that there, of course, there was for different reasons. Um, there were some overdubs done. You know, a, 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 I think primarily Aretha's lead vocals. I didn't bring anyone else in other than the musicians. Obviously, they, you know, there was uh, Bernard Purdy, mm-hmm. Chuck Rainey. I mean. Musicians yes. with whom Aretha had already recorded. Cornell Dupree. Uh, exactly, exactly. The film yes. was due to be released in 1972 yes, and got mired in all sorts of, I'll do this carefully, all, I'm, I'm looking at the look, on, if only people could see the look on your face right now because this is a podcast, but if we had a picture right now, so we'll approach this gently, <laughs> it was, it was, quote, shelved yes. and is finally released you know, it was due to premiere at film festivals. You know all yes, of that. Yes, I do. Yeah. Right. I do. I also know, you know, from conversations I had with Aretha, how she felt about it. 
So what were, so, her, what were her yeah, objections to the film? <laughs> tell us. Because this, well, this is the Rhino podcast. I know, I know. The first thing is that when that was filmed, you know, we have to put it also in context of the time period, 1972, and the part of the reason was that the way the filming was done, the music didn't sync with the film, and there were some technical issues. But then, you know, if you follow the whole history of it, it was only, you know, within the last 10 years that the rights to it went from Sidney Pollock to Alan Elliott and all, the whole, that part of it. And then, of course, as we know, it got a little more complicated because they couldn't find the contract that she related to her having signed her image and likeness. And then they finally found the contract. And she thought, well, you know, this is all these years later. How am I going to get paid for that? <laughs> that was part of the reason. And the other thing I think, I mean, I have a personal opinion about it, which is that, you know, if you look at the footage, you see the film, you see Aretha with people who were such an important part of her life as a human being. I mean, her father's in there almost throughout the whole film. Her father's no longer here. You know, he's saying some great things about her, and it's a very emotional kind of experience for the person who's the central character of the film, so to speak. You know, Aretha was 30 years old. A lot of the imagery, you know, she's sweating, you know, like people see the film. She's sweating a lot. and It wasn't done as a, like, let's like, clean up the, you know, the, the takes and so on. It's just a, it's raw footage, right? And then you know, there are other people, members of her family are there, you know, a couple of her sisters. And then also, you know, Clara Ward, who was such an important influence on Aretha and part of her life as a gospel singer, one of her primary influences, and also someone who spent a lot of time in her household. And that so Aretha found some interesting objections. She had a concern that at some point the camera panned in such a way that you could see Clara Ward's mother's undergarments. Up until this point, one of the key musicians that Aretha had employed was King Curtis. Yeah. He was tragically murdered in between the last live recording, mm -hmm. which was Fillmore West and the Amazing Grace sessions. Mm -hmm. So did Aretha ever talk to you about how she compensated for his loss? No, but I can tell you it was a big loss because King Curtis was already at Atlantic when Aretha got there. Her first recording, in fact, her first album for Atlantic in 1967, I Never Loved the Man the Way I Love You, features King Curtis. They collaborated. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a couple of songs they wrote together. And there was a real kind of musical kinship yes. related to that kind of way they, they interacted. I mean, I think one of the most extraordinary recordings of Aretha's early career at Atlantic is on a track called Going Down Slow, which is on her second Atlantic album, where there's uh, King Curtis is like literally... Uh, you're doing this whole solo in the middle of the song, and she's responding. And they had this really amazing rapport musically, and I know that uh, you know his loss. It was a big deal for Rick. They also went on the road together, as you, as you mentioned about the Fillmore West. But I mean, they did other shows together. I don't know if it was so much compensating. You know, he wasn't there, and I, I don't know that she. Um, well, because he did lead the Kingpins, which yeah, was yeah. essentially her backup group. Yeah, yeah. So she kind of lost a little bit of a musical she director she when she really lost King did. Curtis. She really did. And, and King Curtis is often, I think, some ways is, people forget that he was obviously a premier saxophonist and musician, but he really was a musical director. I mean, there are other Atlantic artists who really benefited from him being there. Yeah. Let's dig in to the Rhino release. It was released originally as a double disc set in 1999 mm -hmm. and had lots of unreleased takes back then, but this is on vinyl for the first time ever, 480 gram 
LPs to dig into. I wanted to say something about the historical significance of this album now. We look at it and, and how it really not only stands the test of time, but it is such a testament to a woman who, if she had probably never decided to go into secular music, if she had just chosen to have a gospel career, this, you, know, this, you can tell from listening to the complete recording why. Because there's so much emotion in there, so much. It's just a brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. And she did win the Grammy. She that did year indeed. For best gospel she did soul indeed. performance. Yeah, yeah. For those who are coming to this for the first time, mm-hmm. and, and part of the joy of releases like this, particularly on, as the kids say, vinyls, yeah. <laughs> is these are long tracks, and in some cases, secular mixed with popular music. I think the perfect example is You've Got a Friend, yeah. which becomes a religious experience. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, that's what you're pointing to is something that I think is also a key aspect of Aretha's artistry, is that she would take songs that weren't associated necessarily with, well, certainly not associated with gospel music, and in the same way she did this with pretty much every album she ever recorded uh, at Atlantic and, and certainly at Columbia, she brought that kind of sensibility, that passion and emotion in her interpretation, which was really born out of her gospel roots, so to speak, to those songs, which made them almost like, you know, uh, like a, a gospel opus, so to speak, even though they weren't necessarily written by the songwriter that way. There are other songs on that album, you know, You'll Never Walk Alone, which, of course, is from a Broadway... Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for someone to be able to take You'll Never Walk Alone, which you know, had also been reinterpreted by other people, but turning it into something that worked in a gospel context. I seldom use the word, but I think you'd have to say that that takes some genius. For people who are not familiar with gospel and the kind of music they're going to hear on this, the glue, so to speak, is the soulful feeling. It's really, for me, soul is always about feeling. It's about passion. It's about emotion. It's about 
really bringing something from within you, which is probably how the word really why it's, why it's called soul, because it actually comes from within you. That's how I relate to it. And I think that, so people who may say, you know, I'm not Christian, I didn't grow up in gospel, I don't, you know, I'm not part of that belief system, so to speak, or belief or, or that religion. With this album in particular, that has nothing to do with it. I mean, you can listen to this and appreciate the deep intensity and the emotion and passion regardless. I mean, every time I hear Precious Memories, I get chills just listening to it because while I didn't grow up in that tradition and most people in Britain certainly didn't and most people probably over the world didn't, it doesn't really matter because the, the feeling and the emotion and the how James Cleveland and Aretha interact on that song, it just doesn't matter. And then the other one for me is, is, and I do have a little funny story, if you don't mind me inserting about one of the tracks, How I Got Over. Yes, please. Yeah. You know, I love that song. How I Got Over, for me, was about, in the face of whatever you're dealing with, you kind of made it through. How I Got Over, right? You know, and my soul looks back and wonders. And many, many, many decades later, after Aretha and I became more, you know, of a personal connection after many, many years of interviews and being so clear about what an amazing human being and, and artist she was. One very famous day, we were just talking, it wasn't anything to do with anything professional. She said, how are you? I said, well, you know, let's just say that today I'm reminded of the track on Amazing Grace, How I Got Over. And I, my soul truly today is looking back, wondering how I got over. And she was very respectful and not asking me whatever had happened that day. She just kind of understood that whatever I, whatever that was. And it really was like that. So it, it was personal for me. That song really, I can, sometimes I do wonder. Let's dig in a little more into Holy Holy. Well, when I first heard Amazing Grace, I was kind of surprised that she chose that. I would say it didn't fit, but I mean, I just thought of it as a track on Marvin Gaye's brilliant album. The way that that's done on Aretha's record, it really is transformed from almost like a secular recording with a message into something else. It really does become like a full-on gospel piece as a result of how it was arranged with Aretha's version. It's not, I mean, I kind of forgot, I almost kind of forgot the Marvin Gaye version, to be honest with you. I'd be rude about Marvin Gaye, but I kind of forgot that that was, because it sounds like a, it just sounds like a great gospel song. We've got to come. 
Mary, don't you weep for yes, me. Yes. You know, you know what was great about that for me too? That was an example of something that I would not, and many of us would not have actually been exposed to, that whole kind of, just the whole kind of interplay between Aretha and the choir. I mean, it's, it's just... It's just really the essence of what people refer to as authentic black gospel music. Yeah, again, I, I just want to reference that it doesn't really matter whether you, whatever religion you grew up in or belief system, it's not about that. It's about the, the magic of how they, they interacted. Detroit techno producer Robert Hood, mm-hmm. known as Floor Plan, took Never Grow Old and turned it into a house track. Oh, I haven't heard that. Wow, uh-huh. really? And he did, and it's considered one of the decade's best house tracks. You know, I will say something that I think is important for the generation of people who may be listening to this album, Amazing Grace, that um, have grown up in a sense and listening to samples and you know, people. Yeah, I, I think that um, what's great about it is if, it, as long as it's credited correctly, that they can actually go back and hear the original how, where that was taken from, and it, it really, in a sense, can can become like an education for people. We. Never, never go, never go, never, 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 of the piece de resistance. Okay. Amazing Grace. Definitive version. Of, I mean, to take a song that is such a standard mm. and to make it absolutely a definitive version as only she could do. Mm-hmm. This is this is, is something that when people sit and they, they, they put their vinyls on the turntable, the vinyls. <laughs> they're, they're just going to sit there and they're going to crank it. Uh, so the song... I didn't hear it ever. I think probably Aretha was the first version I ever heard of it, too. Did this album, in your opinion, inform her approach afterwards? Did, did this change the way that she looked at her music at all? No. That's an easy, direct answer. No. 
because what she was doing was really doing something she had always been doing. And in fact, as you listen to her father, Reverend Seal Franklin, on this particular complete recordings, you know, the whole thing, you hear him saying, you know, he uses a, a, a very 70s expression, you know, Aretha's just a stone singer, you know, in other words, you know, I said stone, not stoned. Stone, <laughs> stone, making sure we clear. Solid, meaning so, solid. Yeah, solid. Yeah, and that, that in other words, uh, he, he's making the point she never left gospel. I say with pride that Aretha is not only my daughter, Aretha is just a stone singer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this has been incredible. It's wonderful that people are going to get to hear this the old-fashioned way, but also as beautifully produced as it was kind of like listening to the master tapes in the studio. So, yeah. so thank you so much for sharing your knowledge of Amazing Grace with us, David. You're very welcome. Riches promised, I sure did learn a lot from David Nathan about Amazing Grace and Aretha Franklin. Even for people who are familiar with Aretha's music, it's nice to hear from someone like David Nathan, who is so familiar with the details of the Queen of Souls career. Absolutely. And as mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, David is going to be back in the coming weeks with two other podcasts as our guests talking about Aretha Franklin. Aretha Franklin, Amazing Grace, The Complete Recordings, is out now on vinyl for the first time as a 4LP set. And Aretha Franklin, Amazing Grace, the movie never before released, is in theaters as of April 19th, 2019. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Executive producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Pop Cult and Rich Mahan Promotions. All rights reserved. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.